You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, we have finally made it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, this is how the chapter starts. Can I just read verse 1 to you? It starts like this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Let's stop right there. Uh, If you are new with us today, we are so glad that you're here. I am so thankful that you're here today, and you couldn't have picked a weirder day to be here. That's verse one of the chapter we're in today. Uh, One reason that we love preaching through books of the Bible is because it forces us to preach hard parts of the Bible, like the parts of the Bible that I probably wouldn't choose on my own. But when you're preaching sequentially through a book like we're doing in 1 Corinthians right now, it makes you preach the hard parts. And when you preach the hard parts of the Bible, it reminds us that God put those hard parts in there. And he put those hard parts in there not to hurt us, but to help us. So we need to remember that as we come to a text like this that's hard. It's a severe text that we're in today. It's a hard text. It's a very countercultural text. It kind of grates against our cultural sensibilities. That's the text we're in. And God has put that text in the Bible to help us. So a man has moved in with his stepmom. Uh, that's, that's the context uh, for this uh, chapter. And, you know, it's funny, I often hear people romanticize the early church, if we could just go back to Acts. And I'm like, you really want to go back there? You sure, you sure about that? Uh, the, the early church is like every church. It had so much beauty in it, but it was also full of brokenness, uh, just like every church, right? So a man has his father's wife. And uh, you might underline that word has. Do you you see that there? For a man has his father's wife. That that word uh, helps us understand the context of this particular situation. This is not a moment of high-handed sin followed by deep mourning and repentance. It's not that. Uh, If it was, 1 Corinthians 5 would actually look a lot different. It wouldn't be written in the way that it is, but it's not that. That word has is in the present tense. It means it's an ongoing action. So that's the situation here. This man is in his sin. It's an ongoing action, and there is a refusal to turn from it. That's the situation of 1 Corinthians 5. Now, here is the interesting thing just to observe about the chapter as a whole. Paul is not writing 1 Corinthians 5 uh, to deal with this person's sin. He is writing 1 Corinthians 5 to deal with the church's response to his sin. He is writing this to the church. He's addressing the church. So you see it in verse two. He looks at the church and says, are you, church, this is you plural, church, and you are arrogant, right? So rather than confronting this sin, they're celebrating it or at least tolerating it. And Paul, like he's done throughout this letter, he points to their root problem. And if you have kind of been following along with us, you know the root problem in this church is pride. That's their problem. And in this particular moment, here is the face that pride is wearing. Pride is making them passive, unwilling to rock the boat, unwilling to move toward their brother in this sin, but willing to let him die maybe forever in his sin. That's what pride is doing in this particular church. And rather than celebrating it and tolerating it, Paul says, ought you not to mourn? 
Paul's looking at this church and saying, church, where, where are your tears? Sin is God belittling. This particular sin is destroying this person. It's degrading this church. It's killing his joy. It's killing your collective joy. Ought you not to mourn? Ought you not to call this man to repentance? Ought you not to invite him to come back home to Jesus? And if he refuses, look at the last phrase in verse two. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's a hard text. That's a severe mercy, a severe grace from the Lord. Now, this situation in Corinth sets the stage for the longest sustained teaching on church discipline. We, we call it care and correction here. But the longest sustained teaching on care and correction or church discipline in the scripture. So that's what the Lord has set before us in 1 Corinthians 5 to work through, to consider together, to think through together this morning. So I want to do that in a couple of parts. I want to just ask the question, what it is? What is care and correction or church discipline? Uh, secondly, how, how do you go about doing it? And then thirdly, why is it necessary? Why, why do churches practice care and correction or church discipline? So here's question one. What is church discipline? My friend Jonathan Lehman describes it this way or defines it. He says, church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the life of a congregation and its members. That's church discipline. Let me just remind you that church discipline is a redeeming work of God. We need to be reminded of that because we don't often think about discipline in any of its forms being redeeming, but that's what it is. It's a redeeming work of God, correcting sin in our life and in the life of a church. Church discipline's aim is not to be punitive. That's not the point of church discipline. Uh, the, the aim of church discipline is to be restorative. This is why in verse 5, Paul says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That, that he may be right with God and, and enter into forever with God, right? That, that's the aim of church discipline. The goal is to see a person's relationship with Jesus restored, their relationship with others restored, right? The, the way they're relating to God reopened and, and renewed, that's the aim of church discipline. Discipline in all of its forms in our life. Every moment it comes into your life, discipline. Every moment that comes into your life is a redeeming work of Jesus. This is why Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, uh, just sort of says it clearly. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof or correction or discipline, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I mean, just sort of says it, right? So the first thing we need to ask ourselves today is that. Is our heart wise when it comes to discipline? That we can see it as a redeeming work of Jesus in our life? Or is our heart foolish? Resisting discipline, running from discipline, refusing discipline in our life. And if you find yourself in that second category, and really this is a prayer for all of us, we all need to be praying today that the Lord would make our hearts humble enough to receive discipline humble enough to allow the Lord to correct us, to care for us in the ways that our hearts need. 
So church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the life of a congregation and its members. Now the question becomes, how does church discipline work? And to see that, we need to go back to Matthew 18. So if you want to flip back over to Matthew 18, that would be uh, really helpful to see that there. And what we're going to find in the scriptures is that there are five means of grace that the Lord gives us in discipline. There's five means of grace the Lord uses to care for us and to correct us, to, to help our lives flourish in him, to help us follow him with our whole heart. Five means of grace. So I just want to walk through these five means of grace for us. Five means the Lord uses to care for and correct his people. The first we might call personal discipline. Now, personal discipline is pre-1 Corinthians 5, and it's pre-Matthew 18. Right, it's pre all of that personal discipline. If you think about what the Christian life is, here's one way to think about it. It is repentance on repeat. That's the Christian life. It's just repentance all the time. That's normative Christianity. Repentance is the ongoing posture that sees sin for what it is, turns from that sin, and comes back home to Jesus. That, that's repentance. We're seeing sin for what it is, the thing that is killing us. Then we turn from that sin and we come back home to Jesus, the one who is giving life to us. That's repentance. And the Christian life is just that repentance happening all the time, right? So just it's Monday and you wake up and it's going great on Monday. And then you just start living and because our hearts are prone to wonder, and because sin is stalking us all the time, we find ourselves stumbling into sin. And the Holy Spirit comes with a still small voice and says that and convicts us of sin. And personal discipline is the moment in that conviction we respond to the Spirit, we listen to the Holy Spirit, we say yes, we agree with you, we see that sin for what it is, we turn from that sin that's killing us, that's taking life from us, and we come back home to Jesus. It's just that happening all the time. It's me uh, driving home uh, just a few weeks ago and uh, the Lord convicting me of a harsh moment with my youngest, Eva, and the Lord uh, convicting me of that. And then me agreeing with him in that, seeing it for what it is, turning from it and coming back home to Jesus, repenting to her for that, right? It's just, it's just that happening all the time. That is normative Christianity. Repentance is not a one-time event in a Christian's life, follower of Jesus' life. It's just the ongoing event in our life. It's happening all the time in our life. But there are times when we can't see our sin, when we resist the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life, the conviction that he's bringing over sin in our life, where we refuse to respond to the promptings of the Lord in our life. So then the question becomes, what happens when personal discipline fails, when we resist, just stiff neck, just we refuse to, to follow the Lord and, and to respond to him? What happens then when personal discipline fails? Well, after that, personal discipline, the Lord introduces church discipline into our life. The Lord uses our church family, people in our life. So now we're to church discipline. And the first step in church discipline is what we might call private discipline. So as soon as personal discipline fails, private discipline is our next means of grace to care for and correct us. Now think about the, the culture of any healthy church. The, the culture of a healthy church is grounded in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. 
So most moments in a church's life, in our life together, you're, you're going to be hurt by someone. Uh, they're going to even sin against you. Uh, but it's just going to fall into that category of we cover it. It's, it's uh, Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. We just, we're hurt by a person, something that's done is graded on us, they've even sinned against us, but it's just not that big a deal. Not everything has to be responded with in a high way, right, by confrontation. So we just, it's our glory to cover sins. It is our glory to overlook sins. So th this is the, the sort of default setting in a church's ecosystem, that we're just going to be good at doing this, overlooking a lot of things. And, and the truth is, for every one of us in here, if we're going to grow up in Jesus, we all need three things. We need the good news of Jesus, the gospel. We need safety, and we need time. We need repeated exposure to the good news of Jesus, his grace in our life. We need safety, a safe place to be honest about our sin, not just the good in us, but the bad in us. And we need time, people who are willing to be patient with us, overlooking a lot of things along the way. The gospel, safety, and time. Who doesn't want to be a part of a church like that, amen? Right? This is the default setting in a church. But there are moments where sins have a clear, outward, and more serious nature to them. The consequences are detrimental and even devastating. So they're clear, outward, and more serious. And there is no evidence of repentance in a person's life. And when those ingredients are present, it makes us move through covering all the way to confrontation. We go past overlooking this sin to this has to be confronted for their good. It has to be confronted. And this is where uh, Jesus helps us here. In, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, look at verse 15. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. There is the first step of church discipline, private discipline. And Jesus tells us how to do that. Uh, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, your brother sins against you. Now, go and find 10 people to gossip about him. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he says, if your brother sins against you, you go to that person, to your brother. We go to them, and we go to them humbly. We go to them with gentleness. We go to them with a posture of love. It's not because we want our pound of flesh from them. It's not because they need to hear how much they've hurt. No, it's because we, we love them. We want them restored to Jesus. We want them to flourish in Jesus. So we go to them and we do it humbly, with gentleness, with love. The aim is to restore them. It's not punitive. It's restorative. We go to them and with humility and gentleness, we say, man, I, I noticed this. And it seems to be out of step with Jesus. How, how do you see this? And this should be happening all the time across a church family. Listen, we all need community like this. And here's why. Because sin is hard to see in our life. It's not always obvious to us. 
We can refuse the Holy Spirit's voice in our life really easily. We all become very good at that. So we all need this. You could just take this as a personal sort of application in the middle of this moment. Is if you don't have community like this around you, people who know you well enough to see into your life and potential sin in your life, then you are not deep enough in with people. You're refusing this protective grace in your life of private discipline. And listen, these moments like this of private discipline, these little moments are life-saving moments. They can change the whole direction of your life. To have someone come and help you see what you can't see. And hopefully by God's grace, you're catching a sin because you've got other brothers and sisters around you who even when you're refusing to deal with sin, they're, they're helping you see it right, for what it is, and turn from it, and come back home to Jesus. Hopefully you're catching it when that little sin is a baby, not a full-grown monster that's going to wreck everything in your life, right? These little moments are life-changing moments, private discipline, and Jesus reminds us, if your brother listens and repents that you've gained your brother, but what if private discipline fails? So personal discipline, it fails, you've got private discipline, but what if private discipline fails? Then you get to verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. When private discipline fails, God gives us the grace of plural discipline, of plural discipline. We grab a few others and we initiate the conversation. And just notice the circle is intentionally kept small. Because the goal in church discipline is not to shame a person, it's to restore a person, it's to renew a person. And two or three witnesses can help in a couple of different ways. One is they may help you see, that they may look at you and be like, man, it is our glory to overlook an offense and this is an overlookable offense. You need to give some grace. You are making too big of a deal out of something that's not that big a deal. So they may help you see, uh, or they may help them see. They may hear the story. They may listen to you both and confirm this is a clear, outward, and serious sin. And then they get to add their voice to that circle that is pleading with this person to see their sin for what it is, to turn from that sin, and to come back home to Jesus. Now, when you're thinking uh, church discipline, um, I think it's helpful to think about it in both uh, its informal sort of ways and context and its formal sort of context. And informal church discipline is covering what we're talking about here, private and plural confrontation. It's when a brother goes to another brother or sister and says, I see this. And maybe a couple of people go and say, we see this. 99% of church discipline, discipline that's happening in the context of a church, 99% of it is this. It's informal discipline. You're in community with other people. You're living together, and you're just all observing uh, each other's lives. And you've got the Holy Spirit living in you that's, that's wanting to help not only your life, but the lives of other people. And you're just honest with one another. 99% of discipline is this. And, and for a church to be healthy, we've got a default to love covers a multitude of sins. It's just our glory to overlook an offense. But when necessary, that we will move toward brothers and sisters to confront. Ephesians 4 tells us that it's impossible for a church to grow and look more like Jesus, to grow up into all that Jesus intends that church to be apart from a willingness of those in the church to know one another well and then to speak the truth in love as needed. 
We will not be all that God's intended our church to be apart from a church willing to do that. Personal discipline, private discipline, plural discipline. But what if plural discipline fails? Well, then you get to the first part of verse 17 in Matthew 18. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Now, you can see the gradual escalation. You go to them. You go with two or three others. And if there's still a refusal to listen, then you go to that next step of discipline. We might call this public discipline. At this moment, at public discipline, it's when you have gone from informal discipline to formal church discipline. So it's now risen up through personal, private, plural confrontation. And now the pastors and the people of the church are now, uh, have entered into that pleading circle, pleading through tears for this person to stop having that affair, for this person to stop wrecking their life, for this person to stop destroying their spouse and kids, for this person to stop walking away from Jesus, right? For this person to see their sin for what it is to turn from that sin and to come back home to Jesus, to stop that clear, outward, and serious sin. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what does it mean to tell it to the church? Some thinks that means every single person in the church, everyone knows about it. Um, other people think it would mean the pastors and the people that know that person in the context of the church. And I think in a smaller church context, it probably means everyone in the church because everyone kind of knows everyone. But in a larger church like ours, I think it probably means the pastors and the people who know that person. So that would most often be in a small group, in a home group for us. Those sort of contexts is what tell it to the church would mean in a context like ours. So public discipline. But what happens if public discipline fails? What happens if they refuse the grace of personal discipline, private discipline, plural discipline, and now public discipline? They're just refusing to see their sin for what it is, turn from it, and to come back home to Jesus. Uh, what, what if that happens? Well, then you get all of verse 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Severe words from Jesus. And that is the same thing Paul is saying. Now flip back to 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5. It's the same thing Paul is saying. Paul, is, Paul and Jesus are saying you have to take that last painful step to remove them from the church. That's the fifth means of grace to care for and correct us. To remove them from the church. So in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says... Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Chapter 5, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. I would take that to mean the same thing as you're to remove him from among you. Uh, chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. That's an analogy where Paul's saying, remove this man from among you. Uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Paul wants to clear up a, a misunderstanding from a previous letter that he sent. Uh, the church had taken his teaching on church discipline to mean that they were not to befriend people who were lost, that lost people. 
and that they, uh, you know, who were obviously living lost lives, that they, they should not befriend these uh, people who don't know Jesus in, in that, that way. And Paul's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. He, of course you should be praying for and pursuing people who don't know Jesus. Of course you should be uh, running after those people who are trapped in all sorts of sin. Yes, you should be befriending them. Yes, you should be praying for them. Yes, you should be befriending them. Yes, you should be a friend of sinners. Do all of that. Yes, by all means. And then in verse 11, he clarifies, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul is clarifying here. Church discipline is not for those who don't know God. That's not who church discipline is for. Church discipline is for those who call themselves a Christian, but with an unrepentant heart, refuse to obey Christ. That's who church discipline is for. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 is about. It is for those who call themselves a Christian, but refuse to obey Christ. Just with an unrepentant, hard heart, refuse to obey Christ. So through tears and pleading, Jesus and Paul look at the church and say, you must take this last painful step of church discipline in an effort to awaken a person for their slumber, in an effort to give this person a foretaste of the judgment that they fear will one day be theirs when they stand before Jesus. The church makes it clear that they can no longer affirm that this person is a follower of Jesus. They can no longer affirm them as a member of the church and that communion would no longer be open to them. I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says, uh, do not even eat with such a one. I think that's the, the primary thing he's getting at is communion would no longer be an option for that person. Now, in almost all cases, a person in this sort of situation would be welcome to come to Sunday services like any person outside of Jesus would be able to come to Sunday services. But the whole nature of the relationship with that person has now changed. Our, the whole nature of it. Our, our relationship now revolves around a tearful pleading with them to repent, to turn from the sin that's in their life, and to come back home to Jesus, the one who will give them life. The whole relationship revolves around that. Now, I, I want to take a moment here to clarify uh, one thing to make one observation and to answer one objection. So first, the clarification. I wanna be overtly clear in what it takes to get to this last painful step of church discipline. And here are the ingredients. I wanna say this clearly. It's gotta be clearly sin, serious sin, outward sin. So we're not like guessing at motives. It's like, no, you, you can see this sin, outward sin. And all of that needs to be accompanied by a prolonged season of uh, unrepentance, a refusal to come back to Jesus. All of those ingredients need to be present. So getting to this last painful step of church discipline, where you have to remove a person from your church, is never a response to past sin that has been mourned and grieved and repented of. It's never that. As a church, we celebrate that, right? That is the work of Jesus showing up in a human being's life when we can look at our life and see, oh, that's sin. And we're grieved over that. And, and we turn from that and we come back to Jesus. That is an occasion for a church to celebrate. 
right? So, so this painful step of discipline only happens when sin is clear, serious, outward with a refusal to come back to Jesus. So I want to be clear on that. Now, here's the observation. Uh, when you read 1 Corinthians 5, it, it's interesting because it only makes sense in the context of church membership. This is the assumption underneath 1 Corinthians 5, uh, church membership. So you can think about church membership and church discipline as two sides of the same coin. So in church membership, the pastors and the people of the church are affirming, yeah, we believe you have been rescued by Jesus. We can see evidence of the Lord's redeeming grace in your life. Yes. And now in church discipline, it's this painful moment when the pastors and people in a church have to look at a person and through tears say, we could no longer affirm that you're a follower of Jesus. Therefore, we could no longer affirm you as a member in the church because you're refusing to turn from this clear, outward, serious sin and to come back home to Jesus. So, but I want you to see the, the connection there. For there to be an out, Paul is assuming there's an in. And I, I just, I wanted to bring that up because I, I just think there's a lot of us who have been around here for a long time and we have never taken that step toward church membership. We've just never taken that, that step in to, to be inside of, of a church. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you toward that. Paul, Paul's got no conception of a Christian that is not a member connected deeply into a church family. So if you have not taken that step, our member, next membership class is in uh, July, or, uh, June. Uh, you can jump online, stonegate.church, go to the calendar, and you can get all the information from that. But I think a lot of us, th this would be a step that we need to take. It's the assumption underneath this text is that we are a member of a church. So if it's not this one, I just want to encourage you to find one that you can jump fully into so that you can be under this protective grace in your life. Now the objection. Uh, one of the objections, I think, when anybody in our culture reads this text is something like this. Oh, that sounds so judgy. So judgy. Now, uh, you, I, you're not wrong to have that impulse. There is a judgment being made in a moment of discipline, in private discipline, plural discipline, public discipline. When you have to take that last painful step of church discipline, there is a judgment being made. And Jesus does say in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you, will too, or you too will be judged. Jesus does say that. And it's also true that Jesus says in John 7, 24, to judge with right judgment. So obviously we need to think a little more deeply about this idea of judging. So let me maybe give you these categories to think about this in. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, when he says, judge not lest you be judged, he is talking about judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is when you are standing up here and you're looking down at all the bad guys standing down there and you're letting them know how bad they are. That's judgmentalism, right? This is what he's addressing in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He's addressing the Pharisees who were doing that very thing. I'm up here. All of you are down there. Let me show you how bad you are and how good I am, right? That's judgmentalism. And Jesus is a big no to judgmentalism. That's Matthew 7, 1. But Jesus and Paul, Jesus is a big yes to making right judgments, to, to, to judge with right judgment. Paul tells us in this text, you need to judge. You need to make a right judgment. So, so Paul and Jesus are for right judgment, that Jesus says this is wrong and Jesus says this is right. 
Jesus says this is obedience to him. Jesus says this is disobedience to him. Jesus is pleased when Christians and churches make right judgments. Now, we do that from a humble heart. This is why Jesus says, uh, get the, the plank out of your eye so that you can see the speck in others. Right? We're not doing it from here looking down there at people, at the bad people. No, we're all recognizing we're all the bad people. Jesus is the one good person, right? We're all in the bad crowd, right? And we're looking eye to eye with people saying, by the grace of God, this is wrong. This is right. Jesus says, this is obedience. This is disobedience. That's making right judgment. And Jesus is for that. Now, I'm going to finish here. Why is it that a church would practice discipline? Why would this be on Paul's radar of like, you need to do that? Why is that? Let me give you just a couple of reasons why and then we'll be done. Number one, why do we practice discipline? It's because we love the person. Uh, Just because something doesn't feel loving, that does not mean it's not loving. It can be loving and feel unloving. Uh, Parents, you know this. When's the last time you have uh, been in the middle of disciplining your son or daughter and your son uh, looks back at you and says, "Uh, Dad, thank you for this redemptive work that's happening in my life right now. (laughs) If you're a mom and you just grounded your kid, when's the last time your daughter's looked at you and said, I've never felt more loved than I feel right now, Mom. Thank you. Never. That's just not, not happening, right? It may not feel like it, but that discipline from a good mom or dad springs from a heart of love. Uh, Years ago, I had coffee with a guy who uh, was new to the church, and this was the um, only time that this question got asked first to me. Here was his first question. Do you believe and practice church discipline? And I looked back and said, well, we, we do believe and practice church discipline, And he said, great, I just wanted to make sure you'd love me like that if I ever needed it. He recognized that even if it's painful, it is an act of love. This is James. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. Friends, I hope if you find me wondering to my death that you will practice church discipline in hopes of bringing me back. It's, it's out of love for the person. It's also out of love for the church because we love the church. Paul uses an analogy in verse six that goes all the way back to Exodus. It would be very familiar in every Jewish person's life. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? But Paul was looking at the church and just saying, hey, you know how leaven or how yeast works. You put a little small pinch in and it spreads, multiplies like crazy and it consumes the whole lump. You know how leaven works. And Paul's point is to say, that is how sin works in a church. When a church allows unrepentant sin to go unchallenged, that sin spreads throughout the church. It degrades the church. It it robs the church of its uh, sensitivity to sin. It robs the church of its vitality in Jesus. It kills the church's enjoyment of Jesus. So so we practice church discipline because we love the church and want the church to be healthy and whole before Jesus. And then lastly, we practice church discipline because we love Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Paul was saying, Christ, our Passover lamb, he was, he was sacrificed for us. He was given for us in our place. And it's in his life, death, and resurrection that our sin is pardoned. But our sin wasn't just pardoned by Jesus on the cross. No, it empowers us. His grace, the cross of Christ, empowers us to kill sin in our life and to follow Jesus with joyful obedience. That's what the grace of God does. That's what the work of Jesus does in our life. Yes, it pardons, but it does more than that. It empowers. But when a church tolerates blatant, unrepentant sin, it makes a mockery of the pardoning and empowering death of Christ. It tells a lie about Jesus. Years ago, I felt the Lord uh, nudging me to affirm Laura to our kids. So we were around the dinner table and uh, I looked at our kids and I said, kids, I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say because it just might save your life one day. So I want you to consider these words. And I looked at them and then I looked at Laura and I said, uh, kids, if if God sees fit to grant you a spouse one day, that spouse is going to represent you. Uh, you, you can picture your spouse as a necklace that you're going to wear every day around your neck. And that necklace will either be filled with beautiful jewels that adorn you and make you look so much better than you are, or that necklace of your spouse will mar and misrepresent you. And, and kids, I want you to look at your mom. She is beautiful inside and out. She is a necklace that I wear so proudly. She makes me look so much better than I am. And if God grants you a spouse one day, make sure she, they look like her. Make sure that they are that a beautiful necklace around your neck that you're going to wear that makes you look so much better than you are. And what's true of me and my bride is true of Jesus and his bride. Church discipline is one way that Jesus has given us to love him, to make sure that the necklace of the church does not mar him and misrepresent him, but makes him look like the treasure that he is. So would you bow with me? I wanna give you just a moment to allow the Lord to press into you, to allow the spirit to speak to you this morning. You know, this, this text really does remind us of the gravity of sin, the seriousness of sin. And friend, you can walk out this morning honest before the Lord, repentant before the Lord, seeing your sin for what it is, turning from your sin, coming back home to Jesus, and joyful in the Lord. You, you can leave that way today. So, so this is really an invitation to do some personal discipline, to ask the Lord, is there, is there any sin that I am holding on to, just being stubborn about? Is there any sin that needs to be killed in my life that I, I'm just sort of coddling and I've made peace with in my life? And then I, I, I'd love for you to ask the Lord this morning if, 
there's anyone who he is asking you to humbly, graciously, gently approach in private discipline, that you've, you've been withholding that means of grace, that you've seen something that's off and that you just haven't been willing to take that step toward them. In front of the Lord, put someone on your mind this morning. Uh, listen and obey him. Father, we are grateful for Jesus, the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for our sin, pardoning our sin so that we are free to repent this morning, empowering us to kill sin, to turn from sin and to come back to you. So Father, would you do that empowering work today? And it's in your good name, amen.